So Romans chapter 10. All right. All right. We're going to need some crowd participation here, so I need everyone's attention. Uncle John, I need your attention. You're distracting your whole table if I don't get your attention, so I'm going to blame you. We know it's Alessandra, but it's fine. It's fine. If I... <laughs> oh, I just thought about grown-ups. Maze. No one else seen that movie? All right, cool. Yes, all right, some people have seen this movie. Okay, now to get serious into what we're actually talking about with Romans chapter 10. If I ask you guys, and I want to I see what you guys said, if you had to describe the gospel in one word, like what, what emotion, what attribute, what just word pops in your mind when I say, hey, what do you think about the gospel? What, what's a one word? And raise your hand. There we go. Frankie? Thankful. Ethan? Huh? Hope? Love? Redemption? Necessary. Jesus. Freedom. Sacrifice. One word to describe the gospel. Yes. Forgiveness. Love. Okay. Uncle John, what do you think? What's one word to describe the gospel? Huh? You can't use the same answer from your table. That's an uncle move, so I'll let you have it. Never mind. That's, a, that's an uncle move. But here's what I want to do. Here's why I ask this question. Because if you look to the world and if you look to what we would claim as the religious part of our country even, uh, Jesus gets some, some weird definitions. The gospel gets some weird definitions. And so the thing about Romans and why we call it the magnum opus, this crescendo, this masterpiece that Paul wrote, Right? Why, we, why we're spending almost our whole fall just going chapter by chapter through Romans is because if we don't understand the ground level of what the gospel message is, you will never be able to tell the difference of what a bad teacher is, what a bad preacher is. You will never be able to grasp the severity of the message. And so that's why... And tonight, normally when I do quotes, I've done it a couple times where I give you some negative quotes, and don't worry, today we're doing it again. If they sound positive to you, then I'm glad you're here. Um, because if you agree with the quote, then I'm, I'm glad you're about to hear more about it. Um, but this quote says this. It says, the reason why the ancient world was so pure, light, and serene was that it knew nothing of the two great scourges or two great destroyers and this person said the first one's the pox and christianity so the two most devastating the pox like chicken pox or like the bubonic whatever they had back in this guy's time i'll date it as soon as i say who this is smallpox there you go not chicken pox i don't know so this quote was by adolf hitler so this quote was by Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was the one who said the two worst things that could happen to humanity in his day and age was smallpox and Christianity. The next quote is this. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. 
It is the parts that I do. Mark Twain. Mark Twain's quote pretty much says, it's not the things that I don't get in the Bible, it's the things that are blatantly obvious in the Bible that do make me very afraid. Another one, religious wars are basically people killing each other over who has the better imaginary friend. Napoleon Bonaparte. There's, a, there's one more quote that I think is really accustomed to where we're at in our day and age, because it was by someone who's very influential with his ideology in our day and age. And he says that religion is the narcotic to keep people stupid. And that's Karl Marx. Karl Marx, the, the, the guy who is pretty much rich people suck and poor people deserve to have everything, and then once they become, they get everything, they're part of the rich people. I don't know. His, his whole process made no sense. But to him, he knew, he saw in his worldview that if you could get enough people to follow along with something, they'd be distracted with everything else that's actually going on. Kind of sounds like our news outlets this day and age, right? You know, this devastation in Israel. It's massive, and it's, and it's a unique moment, but the battle's been going on for decades. See, but we go on. Why do you think there has to be monuments? Why do you think 9-11, it wasn't just enough for the, emotion, for the moment to happen. We had to go build monuments. Why? Because we forget. It's not by accident that the quote literally states, for those who forget, history will what? Repeat itself. And so we see all these notions, and, and then now we dive into culture today. And I started looking up, I just, type, I just, the whole Google thing, right? Like, who is Jesus? And the Google searches really kind of hit what I needed. He's a really good prophet. Some religions even state that he was just a really good teacher and a prophet. He was a really good moral example, right? He lived a really good life, and so can you. He's a really good socialist. Right? You gave him five fish and he fed 5,000. He told the rich young ruler, go sell everything, give it to the poor, and then follow me. Right? So on surface level, man, you're like, come on now. Let's go sell everything, give it. We all need equal playing field, right? That's the whole message that Jesus brought. False. My favorite one is this, right? Jesus is all about love. And I see it's every time something dramatic happens in our world that this one meme gets its due diligence, right? And it's Jesus, right, washing the feet of the person with the pride flag, washing the feet of the Palestinian soldier, washing the feet of the Israeli soldier, washing the feet of the homosexual, right? It's, and it's, the point is made, and the point is good, that Jesus loves, conquer, conquers all, right? That Jesus' message and his life doesn't discriminate against all of our sin. But what that meme is always being displayed by is people who always just want to talk about his love. You'll never hear these same people post about how God's also a just God. These are the same people who will go, no, there's no way a loving God would send people to hell. There's no way a loving God would justly punish these people for this reason. He's a loving God, right? Love is love. See, there's this notion going around that Jesus never really argued theology or harsh lines on how if you follow him, he's going to change your life. That whole easy believerism is what we call it, right? Just believe the gospel, you got your fire insurance, you don't have to live anything different. 
You can be the same old dumb person living dead in your sin, but as long as you go, yeah, like, Jesus is cool, you're just on track. Right? As a culture and as a society, we are so confused on the gospel message and what and who Jesus Christ is. Because we don't hold his word to the proper standard. We don't hold his truths where they should be. And this is why, as Paul, as we transition into the 10th chapter of Romans, this is why he is taking such time between chapters 9 to about 11 to describe the redemptive history that include the national people of Israel. Because on one side, the people of Israel were just this religious haughtiness that were like, the temple and Moses, that's all we need, this Jesus dude's an idiot. And then you have the Gentiles who were like, Israel who? Like, we don't care about the Old Testament. We just want to talk about what God's doing now, right? And Jesus. And they're both wrong. And so Paul's making it very clear, like, actually, like, God actually entered into humanity to bring salvation, right? Emmanuel, God with us. God has worked through humanity to bring redemption. God has worked through the historical outworking of our world to bring things to be. And so for some of the Israelite people, for some of the Jewish people, they were like, man, like, so, you know, and even some of the Gentiles in this context were going like, so, eh, Israel, like, was that like an oopsies? Like, they kind of messed it up, so like, let's get you to the church. And I think we've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again here tonight as we walk through the passage, but it's not that Israel was replaced or forgotten. They were always, we talked about it in the last chapter, it's always been something greater than just the nationalistic form of Israel. They were always meant to be the light to the outside world, to all the pagan and Gentile countries, to bring those people back into who God is. And so we see the fulfillment of that. The church, man, I, I almost, I love the church and I love the local church, but it's the body of Christ. Because when we understand that it's the body of Christ, we understand that the church isn't replacing, the church is actually a fulfillment. Right? Ephesians, there's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. We are all one in Christ. What Solomon, even when he built the temple, prayed out and said, even let the sojourner, let the, let the foreigner from a different country who comes to pray and worship God at our temple, let him be welcome as part of the family. And so Paul's now dealing with in the 10th chapter, he's reminding us the heartbeat of the gospel. I titled this message, that the gospel is the most inclusive, exclusive truth. It's the most welcoming, arms open wide message that has ever been given, and yet it is so exclusive in the truths that it holds. And our world's gotten it backwards. We've made the message open doors to where if you want Jesus to look one way, let them, we're going to have Jesus look this way. As long as they don't contradict each other or we're not beefing with each other, who cares what your Jesus looks like? And what happens at that point when you make Jesus' message of the gospel inclusive, in that way of its truths, they become more subjective, then no one can actually really hold to it. And now it's the most exclusive thing because who knows that your Jesus is right and mine's wrong? We flip the reality of the message. And so if you're in the 10th chapter, it starts off with this. Brothers, my heart's desire. He's talking about Israel. 
My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, the people of Israel had it all wrong. See, they placed their faith and desires in the wrong thing. See, they had their faith in the law and the desire to serve it over God himself. Why do you think they walk around with the prayer boxes wrapped around still? Why do you think they have all these rituals and all these sacred items and things still going on? For those still in the Israel faith, in the, in the Hebrew faith, in the Jewish faith, in those people that don't have Jesus yet, they're still blinded by the religiosity of it. They're still blinded by the works that they have made it. If you can hold these laws, then you're closer to God. And immediately what they've done is they've elevated the temple over the one who it was built for. They've elevated the law over the one who created it. And he's saying that Israel had their righteousness backwards. The people of Israel found their hope and promise in the, in the thing that was actually pointing them to the Redeemer. They really liked the middle ground. <laughs> See, those back then would have known that the law was only pointing them to a Redeemer. And then the Jews in Paul's day, where Paul's writing to these, to these highly religious Jews, he's saying, mm, if you actually got it, if you actually got what the temple and the tabernacle represented and the sacrificial system was pointing to, if you actually paid attention to what God had been telling you the whole time since the garden, you wouldn't be bucking the system. You wouldn't have, I mean, he needed to die for our sins, but the Jews probably wouldn't have been like, give us Barabbas. They should have gone, ha, that makes sense. Because we're not looking at the law to be the ends to the mean but a means to the end who is Jesus. If they had a proper sight of the temple of Moses and the law, they would have seen Jesus as the fulfillment, not as some fake prophet. But they were so blinded by the works and their traditions and everything that they could do to elevate themselves to God instead of the fact that God came down to them. And I don't think this is far off from where we're at today, especially in America. So we're so wrapped up in our culture, right? It's, what is it? It's like, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, then you must be Republican. Like the moment your voter's card is revealed to say Democrat or Independent Party, like you've lost your salvation. We, we've, ugh. it's so gross how blinded people are with politics and religion, like, if you say anything somewhat democratic, how dare you show up at our church? And that's so dumb. That's such a misguided point of view. And by no means am I standing up here advocating for some of the things that the Democratic Party pushes. I get that. So don't hear me as coming out and going, hey, go, go for it. Abortion is great. By no means. But I'm not judging someone's eternal soul based off their voting card. 
That's almost as ignorant as saying, you're an organ donor? Ooh, Jesus gave you your organs for a reason, okay? How dare you say you're an organ donor? And then the other part of it is like, how dare you not be an organ donor? Give all to those in need, right? So go give the kidney. How dare you not give a kidney? Are you saved? And we just mangle it all together, not understanding that Jesus is greater than all of these things. He is so much bigger than our political differences. He's so much bigger than our social differences. He's so much bigger than all these things that we fight about, race, our gender identity. Because I promise you what we're going to walk through, if we get these things right, those issues that we're arguing about over here, we're not going to have to argue about because we're all going to be on an even playing field anyways. Because Jesus will naturally give us a right state of mind when we start walking through his word. But we need to look to Jesus first, not use our politics to get to him, not use our social agenda to get to him, not use our ethnicity to get to him. And so Paul's saying, no, they found righteousness in their own means. See, God's plans don't change. In verse 5, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commands shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, and who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? In verse 8, it says, The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. This is a loose but direct quote from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. And it's actually in a passage of 11 through 14. Moses is, they've, they've been going through all this stuff and all these laws and how shall we then live and all these things. And he ends it with this and he says, For this command I give to you today, it's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But in verse 14, it says, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you can do it. See, even back then, in the nation of Israel, as they're walking and being given these commands and the laws, it was never about simple just obedience to the law. It was about faith that produced obedience. It was about a correct heart in the one who is giving the commands, not a correct command to get the correct heart. It's that whole nonsense of people who are like, I can't go to church. I've committed too many sins. Duh, you should probably be front row. Right? Like, you need the grace. Go experience the grace. If you feel that broken and that downtrodden, let me get you a coffee, let me get you a donut, let me get you front and center. Because the church is meant for you. You do not have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You don't have to stop smoking cigarettes before you get saved. You don't have to overcome that porn addiction before you get right with God. You don't have to become this moral do-gooder, brown-noser to God and all his commands before you actually come to Jesus. Because when you come face-to-face with the one who gives new life, who gives you a new heart, who makes you a new being, slowly but surely, 
those are going to fall away. And you will never be perfect this side of heaven, but you are now made alive to understand what that conviction is, to understand what sin truly is, and to understand what it's doing to you. And now you can actually fight it because you know you're fighting from the victory, not for it. Christ already won. And that's all they were ever being told through the law, through the sacrifice, through all these things. God had said in the garden, I have the victor already planned. Just have faith. And I think these next few verses in in the 10th chapter really wrap out the outworking of all these things that we've covered in salvation, like election, predestination, our choice, the hardening of hearts, but in grace through faith. All these big terms that make all of us argue like we've said over social media, Paul works it out here. What does it say after this, right? We just showed in the Old Testament, the message has always been the same, grace through faith. He then goes on to say, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I love it. Just when we think Paul's so, so fixated on the, on the Jewish people and their, and their, their love for the temple and for, and for the law, he's like, I, don't, I think sometimes we forget how political and how radical it is to simply claim that Jesus is Lord. Like sometimes we're just like, yeah, King of Kings, King Jesus. We put it on a cool shirt with some cool fonts and we sell it on our Instagram, right? And we think we're awesome. But I think we forget sometimes the depth of what it means to actually serve King Jesus, especially in the time where Paul says, hey, Jesus is Lord. Who's the major power in that day? Mm, The Roman Empire. Caesar, Augustine, all these guys, they are Lord. The Romans went to the emperor's temple and sacrificed to the emperors and paid to the emperors and did all these things to the emperors who were pretty much just demigods to them. And so Paul in this moment is stating, hey, by the way, like Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus fulfills the law for you so that now you can actually live the way he wants you to. But also, Jesus is your king. Jesus is the ultimate authority you listen to. And so when you can claim truthfully in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you are now saying, I stand against everything this world tries to tell me is salvation. Because I know it is only in Jesus. In verse 11, it goes on and says, For then scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who, come, uh, who call on him. Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, where the world teaches you that Jesus is just your imaginary friend that you have wars about, where Jesus is just a coping mechanism, where Jesus is just this uh, imaginary thought, this false religion, this, this, this blanket to hide behind. It's a sign of weakness. It's the drug to keep you dumb. Paul's actually saying it's the only remedy for your guilt and shame for all those sins you've committed, for all those sinful thoughts you might even be having right now, and for all those sins you're going to commit later on until you get called home one day. 
and says, when you're in Jesus and you understand the forgiveness that he truly gives and the new life that he gives, it puts away all sin and shame. It puts away all guilt. He loved you enough that he took the cross, took the grave, conquered it, and then said, all you have to do, stop being you. Stop being, stop being the, the infected, broken, world identity given person and let me give you the life you were meant to have. See, I think a lot of times we think that Satan's the one sending us to hell. A lot of times we're always like, oh, Satan got me again. I looked at my phone a little too weird. I went to that one website I shouldn't have. Dang it, Satan. No. The only reason you're ever going to end up in hell is because of yourself. It's because you're choosing to live in your own identity over surrendering and being made new in Christ Jesus who gives you true identity. It's not about finding your authentic self. You want to find your authentic self? Get lost in Christ. Get so wrapped up in who he has called you to be that you will just effortlessly start to figure out what he's purposed you to do in this life because he is king. He is Lord. He gives you true meaning and true purpose. He doesn't put shame on you. Verse 14 goes on to say, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And now are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's no shame in Jesus because how beautiful are you when you bring the one thing that brings true life to other people. You want to do good in this world? You want to change the course of society? You want to go help end the war in Israel? You want to go do whatever this as a good person? Stop trying to do it as a good person and start doing it in the sake of the gospel. How sweet, how beautiful are the feet that preach the good news. You can open as many doors for sweet old ladies that you want this side of heaven. But if you ain't got Jesus and you don't understand the gospel, then you're just probably going to be a greeter in hell. Great job. You've made it big. But man, how sweet. Just join us on a Sunday morning. Stop by on a Wednesday, Wednesday night with our students who are greeters. They have a joy because they know that they're allowing people to walk into a building so they can hear the good news of the gospel. I promise you they have way bigger things and better things probably going on that they could be doing, but they know there's nothing sweeter for them to open a door so that someone can go hear the gospel message. That's the correct heart. That's the correct mentality. Not all of you are going to be called to be pastors, to be missionaries. I'm praying some of you will be called out and feel that calling and are struggling with that right now to step further into ministry. But all of us are called, Matthew 28, to go preach 
the gospel and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's not an asterisk. There's not a sidebar. There's none of those things. We always talk about this. It's pretty plain. If you read it in the Greek, it's going to say the same thing in the Greek, probably just a little bit cooler sounding. It says, you all, all are being sent out to go preach the good news. And so we sit there and we think about last week when we talk about predestination and election and all these things, and we're like, well, then we're just going to sit on our couch and God's going to be faithful to save everybody he needs to save. Mm, Like we just talked about in the beginning of this, God works through human means. God entered into humanity. God gave us the Bible, the word written, literature, poems, prophecy, history, instruction, genealogies. He's worked through human means. How sweet is it that he says, hey, I'm going to accomplish my end goal. You get to be the beautiful feet that go take it to the lost world. I don't care if I ever hear of one person that came to Christ hearing the gospel message from my lips because I understand that it's not about me convincing you. It's not about me persuading you. It's about me just being faithful to give the message. I might just be planting seeds and someone else is going to water it and someone else is going to harvest it. But I understand. I see this and it's just as how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Man, our world today has even corrupted feet. How beautiful is it that we use our bodies to go bring the message to the people around us? Verse 16, it says, it goes on and says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed when he has heard from us? And it goes, so faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. We, we can't, as a church, as a body of Christ, we got to stop making this mistake. The church as large, and I don't mean just our church, the church in general, the, the big C church. The experience of a church service that lacks a good gospel is Nothing. I don't care how good the lights are. I don't care how good the vocalists are. I don't care how motivating the guy on the stage is speaking. If the reality of the gospel is lacking, it is the worst church service I've ever seen in my life. Our testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony includes the gospel, and your testimony is a great vehicle in conversation to get somebody to the gospel. But there's only one person I know whose testimony said, hey, I kind of came into your being, your midst, and I lived a sinless life, and I took the cross for you. I said it was finished. I took the grave. There's only one person. If you have that testimony, come share. Your testimony is a vehicle and in too many church cultures, we've, we've allowed your experience and your church and your testimony to be something that we say amen and preach to those people. And then the guy standing over here trying to give you the gospel message, you're like, dude, that's so boring. Where's the cool PowerPoints? 
Where's the really cool sermon illustrations where I spit in my hand and rub it on my eyes? Where's all the things that are going to keep my attention because we can't be you know, focused on anything for more than five minutes? That's not church. If anything, they need to go join our talent show we just had. So I'll give them that. Some of these guys are really good communicators. Some of these guys are really good teachers. Some of these guys are really good at motivating you to do stuff. They're really good at repeating themselves on preachers and sneakers. Man, they're really good at some things, but they're not good at church. They're not good at preaching the gospel. See, simply sharing how much God loves without judgment and justice is not the gospel either. We can't just run up and down the roads doing street evangelism and going, God loves you. Doesn't matter how you continue to live after you believe that, but God loves you. Yeah, but God's also just. God's also righteous. God's also holy. And God is also one that shall not be mocked. See, the gospel has two very dramatic realities. For the one who believes, new life and life eternal. For the one who rejects, eternal damnation. Punishment, separation from God. There's, there's, there's two very big truths, and we like to not preach the wrath and the just and the anger and the holiness of God. See, Paul said it right in 1 Corinthians. He said, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I want to know nothing else among you than Christ and Christ crucified. That's why we should be getting together. That's why we should be going out. That's why I love that at the end of every church service, what do we say here on a Sunday morning? We've been the church in here. Now go be the church out there. I would rather take that saying repeated to me every single Sunday than some giant weird spectacle of a musical happening with the Ninja Turtles representing the gospel. That's not church. That's really bad youth group. And so we end off the passage this way. It says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For the voice has gone out from all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah even said, it is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, I say all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So just to drive home how faithful and mighty God is, Paul ends this with going and saying, Israel has no excuse but their own stupidity. And I'm standing up here saying it today, that I had no excuse but my own stupidity. You have no excuse but your own stupidity for not understanding the truth of the gospel. It's your own ignorance. It's your selfishness. It's your sinfulness. It's your brokenness that you're allowing to go, mm, this sounds like a really good excuse for the week. 
Mitch was just mean the whole entire time. He said we were stupid. So I didn't care about the gospel message he just gave us. That's on you, not me. I'm just preaching you the truth of what's being said. God is saying, man, I'm extending my arms out to these people for no reason other than my own justice and mercy. And so as we close tonight, I want you to see the beauty that the gospel is very specific. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And that the only way you can be saved is if you believe in that Jesus. If you say, I surrender my life to King Jesus, the one found in this Bible. Not your good works, not your earthly success, not your religious actions. You can't go up there and go, hey, I got the Iwana vest and I had to get a sash with all the badges on it too. Look how good of a person I am. Right? It's not the Bible reading plan that you got and you checked every box and God's going to go like, ah, ah, oh, yeah. You got every check. Way to read it. No, he's going to go, did you even get it? Did you even understand? Or were you that ignorant to it? But there's not a single person on this earth who can't hear that message. And those who desire to be saved will be saved. That's how inclusive the message is. It's for everybody and anybody. But it's exclusive in the fact that it's only by Jesus. It's only by the blood of the cross. So I want to leave you guys with these three points. The first one is, even when we fail, God is faithful. Even when it feels like your whole life is a failure, even when it feels like you are a mistake, even if it feels like things that happened to you that you just completely messed up your whole life with and derailed it, know that God is faithful. If you're still breathing, he's still working. If you're in this room tonight, he has you here for a reason. He is faithful. That's why he's brought you here. It's not by accident. He wants you to understand the beauty of the life he offers. Number two, no matter how your life changes, God doesn't. For some of us, things have happened that changed the whole course that we thought life would be. Man, there are some things in my life that I'm like, man, like I really did not think I was gonna be sitting up here on a stage teaching the word of God to a whole bunch of young adults and youth. I really thought I was gonna be Tim Tebowing it somewhere, doing track and soccer and just having John 3.16 on my back. God's plans changed. Or God's plans didn't change. <laughs> Sorry, I brain farted on that one. My plans changed. God didn't. God was so faithful. In the things that I used to have that would get me in trouble, like talking a lot, I now get to do all the time. <laughs> but God knew. I didn't. I just got in trouble all the time in school because I couldn't shut up. And now he's gifted me to be able to talk and share his word. And the last one, the gospel is very specific, yet it's for all people. So go share it. I don't, I don't understand. Like, 
This is the one and only power. This is the only message with an eternal weight. All other news that you could bring to somebody is secondary to the news of the gospel. And obviously, for most of us, we've believed the gospel. That's why we're here, so we can learn more about the one who gave us the gospel. And yet, we get immediately terrified or like annoyed when we're like, hey, you should probably go share the gospel with people. Like, what? That's why we invite them to church. I can't stand that. My job is not to evangelize all your lost friends. My job is Ephesians 4, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. My job is to train up all of you in this room so that when you leave here tonight, you feel more empowered to go to that coworker who is just dead in their sin and needs the life of the gospel. To go home to that family that's broken and abusive and hates God and go, hey, man, I want to love on you like God has loved me through the gospel. I so wish I could go home with all of you and help share the gospel to all your friends and family literally impossible. My job is to equip you so you can go share the gospel with people that I might not ever meet once in my life. So as a caveat to your testimony not being the gospel, you inviting someone to church isn't evangelism. You sharing the gospel with somebody, that's evangelism. You bringing someone to church that's relationship building. That's a really great start. And they're probably going to hear the gospel there. But you missed out on the opportunity where you could have shared it. And so I encourage you guys, if this is the one gift that we entrust our whole life with, this side of heaven and next, why are we so scared to share it with people? Why are we so scared to claim the name of Jesus in public? Why are we so scared to say, hey, yeah, I do go to church on a Sunday. That's why I kind of have a chill Saturday. Like, why is that so bad? It's okay to be in your Instagram bio, but heaven forbid it ever leaves your lips in public. I'm a daughter of the king. Okay, go be that. Go, go be a daughter of the king and share about your family to this broken world. So let me pray, and then we're going to talk about these for a little while. And if you have any questions about what we talked about tonight, I sit right up here so you can ask me any questions you need to about the message, about anything that's on your heart. I sit right here so you can talk. We also have some leaders in the room, and there's people around these table who God has put you with to talk about it. So let's pray, and let's enter into this time. Father, man, we love you. Thank you so much for the fact that it's, it's through Christ alone. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that he died for our sin, for our shame, for our mistakes, and to forgive us, to conquer sin and death, and then rose physically from the grave and now sits at your right hand, God, if we confess that with our mouth and believe that in our heart, we will be saved. And I think there's some of us in this room tonight that we've been running from that message for too long. We've been hiding behind the facade of cultural Christianity for too long long. God, help us to know that it's my grandma's faith, my parents' faith, me going to Indian Rocks or a Christian school, none of that matters in light of judgment. Who is the king of our heart? And God, I pray for everyone in this room tonight that they'll make the decision that it's you. Let King Jesus reign 
in our hearts. Father, we love you. We thank you be with our small group time, be with our hangout time afterwards, and just let us continue to grow this family of people who just love you. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.